As we look at Ruth today, I'm going to steal an image from uh, Danny Hayes and Scott Duvall. Um, this is a f story that people are very familiar with. It's just four short chapters. Uh, most of you know the story, but there are a lot of things that go on in the story um, that may be happening that have some details and some background to, the, to them that I want to um, encourage you to pay attention to. And so what we're going to do at the beginning of this message, we're going to kind of walk over into the, uh, the period of time, and, and I want to give you kind of an overview of the story, some background of the story, and we're going to cross this bridge into the, uh, to the um, ancient world, and I'm going to give you some background, and then we'll eventually make our way to the story that you're really familiar with. Um, last week, I tried to make some connections with characters related to Downton Abbey. And uh, for those of you who aren't um, Downton Abbey watchers, I just completely lost you. Uh, so I thought I'd try to make a few more connections this morning. I looked up some artwork related to Bo Ruth and Boaz. Um, this is William Hole uh, there on the left, and he is a Scottish artist. And I think it's an interesting portrayal. The guy on the right um, is Harold Copping. He's a British artist, and these are um, not super famous, but this is artwork. Now, that may be Maybe if you weren't Downton Abbey fans, maybe some artwork will connect with you. Um, I've got one last shot to try to connect with you, okay? In this romance story where Naomi and Ruth come back from a faraway land and they find um, in, a, in a whirlwind romance that really takes place over the course of about six weeks is how, how long this story uh, really unfolds when they, when they arrive back in Bethlehem, um, they... There's just a wonderful love story. Now, there's a mother-in-law involved, and, and, and um, they, they have to go through some processes to figure this all out, and I'm going to try to explain some of that background. But to try to connect, if Downton Abbey artwork maybe doesn't work for you, um, maybe this will. He was my boyfriend! Okay, so I've got artwork, I've got Downton Abbey, and I've got Young Frankenstein. Um, so those of you who, how many of you have never seen that clip before? Just, I totally lost you. Okay, uh, help me if there's some other way I can connect. I'm just trying to, to get the characters introduced to you uh, here in Ruth. Um, as, we, as we look at this story and as it unfolds, a, a, a love story, a tragedy, um, a comedy at certain points in time, um, one of the things I want you to be aware of is something that Bruce Waltke says. He says this, we must first know how a text means before we know what it means. Um, the how of this is beautifully displayed so many times in the structure of Ruth. This whole story is a reversal story. The entire book is a chiasm. Um, it builds up to a turning point, and then it has an exact duplication unfolding the other side as everything is reversed. And I counted, probably le legitimately, uh, sometimes people can go crazy with chiasms. In the minor sections in this book, there are at least 37 other chiasms. Because even small little speeches, everything is designed to show that there's a reversal going on here. There is a tragedy. There is a reversal. Um, and so that leads us to how this book is, is showing all of these wonderful reversals. Um, the whole story, individual speeches, little things that people say, there are these reversals uh, embedded in the story. But the purpose of all of that is to show us something. And there's a couple of things, I think, 
that are revealed as the purpose of Ruth. It's to provide a defense of the Davidic monarchy. It's, it's to show that in the midst of this chaos of the period of the judges, God was at work and preserving through one family line um, this line that would result in the birth of David. Um, because that's how the book ends. The last word of the book is David. It ends with a genealogy that, that gets us um, to David. I think the other thing, and this is related a lot to um, our own application of the story, it demonstrates God's providence in using regular people to accomplish his messianic plan. God uses regular people in this story. They're not prophets. They're not priests. Uh, there's nothing holy about them. These are regular, everyday people like you and I, and God is using them as a strategic part of his plan. And it also sets forth an example of exceptional living, and I would say even exceptional, exceptional living in a hostile world, when it's very difficult to live this way. Um, to highlight some of these things, I've got some resources that are at the Connection Center, they're online. One of them talks about the literary design, the style of uh, Ruth. Um, it is uh, by Dan Block, all three of these first ones are all by Dan Block. One is the, the literary design, and I think you'd, you'd be fascinated to see all that's going on in this book. It's one of the most beautiful books in all of the, the, the scriptures. Um, there's another one out there that really focuses on what we learn about God, and then the last one that I'm calling an applicational point is what we learn about people. And so these are big overviews. Two of them are four pages long, so I don't usually put long things out there, but I want to encourage you to take note of all of that. And embedded in all of this, and Dan Block is going to highlight this, is this idea of hesed, loyal covenant faithfulness. And it is both God's faithfulness to us and his purpose, and in response, God's faithfulness back to him or our faithfulness back to him and our faithfulness to one another. And that is woven through this entire story. God is faithful to his people, his people faithful back to him, and because of that, they can be faithful and generous with one another. Um, Dan Block, in one of those articles, he defines this real key idea of God's loyal love, his hesed. Um, unfortunately, the, the, the translators have to struggle with how to translate this, and in the NIV in particular, they use the word kindness. It's just like, gosh, they're trying to, they know they can't capture everything, and they choose a bland word. Um, so sometimes it's, it's translated um, in a way that I, I wish you could get all of it. Here's what Dan Block says about it. Hesed is one of those Hebrew words whose meaning cannot be captured in one English word. This is a strong relational term, it's very relational, that wraps up in itself an entire cluster of concepts, all the positive attributes of God, love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness. In short, that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to those who express it. It, it is loving kindness is how it's often translated. It's love, loyalty, relationship to another person, but it expresses itself in kindness in action. It's not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. It is deep emotion that results in action on behalf of another person. And uh, Dan Block is going to highlight that in particular in his um, article on theology that's out there. I want to encourage you to get a hold of that. There's another uh, resource I have out there, and it's very simple. It is um, Eugene Peterson's introduction to the book of Ruth in the message. 
Uh, throughout the message, if you have a copy of it, um, there are these short little introductions to every book of the Bible. Um, this is so good, I want to read it to you, okay? So this is not something I normally do. Um, this is going to take me about two and a half minutes, but I want you to pay attention uh, as I read this wonderful introduction to what's going on and the purpose of Ruth. Peterson writes this, as we read the broad, comprehensive biblical story of God at work in the world, most of us are entirely impressed. God speaking creation into being, God laying the foundations of the life of faith through great and definitive fathers and mothers, God saving a people out of a brutal slave existence and then forming them into lives of free and obedient love, God raising up leaders who direct and guide through the tangle of difficulties, always involved in living joyfully and responsibly to God. Very impressive. So impressive, in fact, that many of us, while remaining impressed, feel left out. Our unimpressive, very ordinary lives make us feel like outsiders to such a star-studded cast. We disqualify ourselves. Guilt or willfulness or accidents make a loophole, and we assume that what is true for everyone else is not true for us. We conclude that we are somehow just not religious and thus unfit to participate in the big story. And then we turn a page and come on this small story of two widows and a farmer in their out-of-the-way village. The outsider Ruth was not born into the faith and felt no natural part of it, like many of us. But she came to find herself gathered into the story and given a quiet and obscure part that proved critical to the way everything turned out. Scripture is a vast tapestry of God's creating, saving, and blessing ways in this world. The great names in the plot that climaxes at Sinai, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and the great names in the sequel, Joshua, Samuel, David, and Solomon, can be intimidating to ordinary, random individuals. Surely there's no way that I can have any significant part on such a stage. But the story of the widowed, impoverished, alien Ruth is proof to the contrary. She is the inconsequential outsider whose life turns out to be essential for telling the complete story of God's ways among us. The unassuming ending carries the punchline. Boaz married Ruth. She had a son, Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. David. In its artful telling of this outsider, widow, uprooted, and obscure woman who turns out to be the great-grandmother of David and the ancestor of Jesus, the book of Ruth makes it possible for each of us to understand ourselves, however ordinary or out of it, as irreplaceable in the full telling of God's story. We count every last one of us, and what we do counts. I think that captures what's going on in the book of Ruth. <laughs> God's telling a story, and, and in this, there are just ordinary people whose lives get turned around. Naomi's life gets turned around. Ruth's life gets turned around. Boaz's life gets turned around. And the trajectory of all of them change, and they move into being a key player in the story of God. John Piper says this, What Naomi does not see with the eyes of her heart is that in all her bitterness, God is plotting for her, her glory. I love that. <laughs> Behind the scenes, God is plotting for her glory. This is true of all God's children. In the darkest of our times, God is plotting for our glory. 
If we would believe this and remember it, we would not be as blind as Naomi was when, he, when God began to reveal his grace. Um, a beautifully told story that's revealing God's loving kindness, faithful, hesed love that, that connects him to us and causes him to act on our behalf and should cause us to respond in faithfulness to him and sharing that generosity with others. Um, a story that highlights regular people and the turnaround that all of them had. Um, as we continue walking around in the book of Ruth before we get to reading chapter 2, I want to remind you that one of the key elements that's going to arise in this passage, and particularly it's going to play itself out in chapter 3, is this idea of a kinsman redeemer. Um, this is set up in God's plan um, how he wants things to work out in the world. Leviticus 25 says this, If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. Um, God wants people to take care of each other and family heritages. Um, the, the kinsman redeemer was responsible for the family heritage and the family reputation. Um, I don't have the verse on it, but this is the guy who was responsible to take revenge on someone who had murdered someone in your family if they didn't take the protection that God offered them in the city of refuge. Um, Leviticus goes on to say this, If a foreigner residing among you becomes rich, and any of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells themselves to the foreigner, to a member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right of redemption after they have sold themselves. One of their relatives may redeem them, an uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in their clan can redeem them, or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. This is um, God's plan. People take care of one another. Um, but I want to apply something here uh, that I highlighted last week. God knows we need grace. God knows we get ourselves in situations uh, that we can't take care of ourselves, And he's provided for that by asking us to take care of one another. But this also points ahead to Jesus being our kinsman redeemer in a situation related to our sin that we could not take care of ourselves. Christ, who is one of us, he came and he became human um, without a debt of his own, paid to get us out of the debt of sin. And this story beautifully pictures how that uh, portrays itself. There's also something going on here related to another background that comes from Deuteronomy that's called Leverite marriage. Um, it says this, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Keeping family heritage alive was really important. He goes on to say this, however, if a man doesn't want to marry his brother's wife, by the way, this is not compulsory, it's optional, but it's shameful if you don't do it. Um, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders of the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. By the way, this is exactly why the scene in chapter three, uh, in chapter four, is going to take place at the city gate. Um, she says, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town summon him and they talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. 
That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Uh, the image there is this, you now get the property, or you don't get the property, and that's where your sandal walks, that's what you're going to get. And if you're not going to redeem it, then you have to take the sandal off, and he experiences shame. There's no penalty other than the shame that he feels. I'm going to uh, apply something here, because how we see this played out in the book of Ruth is not the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law. Um, if you're just trying to figure out what is, what's the bare minimum I have to do, and you're living by the letter of the law, um, the stories in the Bible sometimes don't make sense. And if you're trying to get a one-to-one -one correspondence between the laws that I just gave you from Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the book of Ruth, you're going to see that they don't correspond exactly. It's because the people in the story are living by the spirit of the law. While it's true that, <clears throat> uh, that the specifics of Leverite marriage are not exactly in play in the book of Ruth, Boaz is not Elimelech's brother. Um, the point is made even more clearly that these are people who are not living by the letter but the spirit of the law. Living by the spirit of the law is not looking for loopholes to get out of doing what is right. Boaz did not have to redeem her. He didn't have to. But he was looking for opportunities to be generous and bless others by going above and beyond what is required. Um, even for us, uh, God calls us to live not by trying to figure out what's the bare minimum, but try to figure out how can you be generous? How can you go above and beyond to bless others who are around you? You've got to understand all this. As we're walking around in the story of Ruth, you've got to understand some of this background material. Of, of He's showing regular people involved in God's big story. He's showing God's faithfulness to them, their faithfulness to him, and their faithfulness to one another. Um, he does this in this beautiful love story where a man goes above and beyond to provide for other people, and in particular, he goes above and beyond to enter into a relationship uh, with this young foreign girl um, who most of the people around were mistreating and she would have been looked down upon. And what we see in chapter 2 is it's Ruth's initiative and the character of Boaz to just review a little bit of what I went over last week. Uh, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind, uh, behind anyone in, the, in whose eyes I find favor. Ruth is taking the initiative what we see in all of that is that the sovereignty of God puts us in the right place at the right time. Look at how it unfolds. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter, after she takes the initiative. So she went out, entered into a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, um, it just so happened. Literal translation, her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. It's irony. It's not a chance. It's not just so happened. It's not luckily she ended up there, but it's God's hand guiding every element of this because God often makes this abundant provision in surprising and unexpected ways. She wasn't trying to figure out what's the best field. Her, her chance chanced. She happened to happen upon the field of Boaz, but this is exactly what she needs. Just then, Boaz arrived back one. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. He's a spiritual guy. The Lord bless you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, 
Who does that young woman belong to? He notices her, and he's basically asking, is she married? <laughs> who, does, who does she belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for one short rest in the shelter. Now, just to give you a little background on a Moabite, and when he says she's the Moabite, um, that is not with a smile on his face. <laughs> He's saying in a diminutive way, she's the Moabite. Um, the background of this is Deuteronomy 23 that says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of, the, of God, not even in the tenth generation. You'd have to have a lot of children and generations before a Moabite was allowed to come into the assembly of God. For they did not come to meet you with bread or water when you came out of Egypt, and they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor and Aram Narahim, to pronounce a curse on you. The, the Moabites are looked down upon. Um, the short version of the story is Moabite women were loose women. Um, they were not respected. And that's probably what is going on in this story when the harvesters in Boaz's field are mistreating her. They're probably taking advantage of her, thinking, ah, she's loose, we can get away with something here. Um, but the story's highlighting something that Al Ross says. The law says Ruth can't be accepted in the community of Israel because she is a Moabitess. Grace says she can. I don't know what your background is. I don't care what your background is because grace trumps it all. Um, she had a, a bad background, but God welcomed her into the community. So Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. And he says a couple of things here. Don't go and glean in another field. She may have been walking away. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow after, along after the women. Stay away from those guys. Um, I have told the young men not to lay a hand on you because it seems like maybe they were. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. You're, you're welcome in this entire field. Now, as we move more into the story, we're going to see that Boaz has a plan here. And Ruth ha has a work ethic. <laughs> we have a, a, a woman with a lot of character and a man with a lot of character. The story started off telling us that that Boaz was a Gibor Hael. He was a man of valor. He was a virtuous man. He was living his life as a virtuoso. That same term is going to be applied to Ruth later in the story. And as we see this man with a plan to bless others, he's already blessing as many as he can. And we see her with a, Ruth, a work ethic. What we find is that consistent character, both in Boaz and Ruth, results in respect, honor, and blessing. Here's the story as it continues. At this, after he says, you can stay in my field and keep harvesting, stay close to the women, get a drink anytime you want. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? She understands that she's in a diminutive place. She's not in a place where uh, she's, she's a standout. I don't know how he noticed her. I don't know how they know she's a Moabite, other than probably a story of a loose woman, woman in town has circulated. Maybe she had, I don't know, she had a story and it said, you know, fellowship Moabite. I don't, I don't know what she, her story said. Um, Boaz replied, I've been told all about you and what you have done, uh, what have you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of her, your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland, you came to live with a people you did not know before. 
May the Lord repay you for what you have done. You've been faithful. He's basically saying, you've had Hesed. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Um, It's not just her kindness to her mother-in-law. She's not just being loyal. She is doing that. But Boaz is very aware that she has come to take refuge under the Lord. And as she is taking refuge under the Lord and she feels protected by the Lord, it allows her to be kind and take initiative to make sure that her mother-in-law, Naomi, is taken care of. Dan Block says this, Ruth was claiming Yahweh as her divine patron and protector. To express this notion, Boaz introduces one of the most beautiful pictures of divine care in all of Scripture. He imagines Yahweh as a mother bird who offers her wings for protection of her defenseless young. She has come to take protection under the the wings of Yahweh. That's her protection. That's her provider. That's who she's looking to to supply for her. And Boaz understands, I may be the channel through whom that comes, but she's not looking to me. She's not manipulating this. In fact, it looks like she was leaving the field. He told her, don't leave the field and go to another. Uh, In all likelihood, she was being mistreated by his workers, and he says, hey, come back here. I've told them to stop it. She wasn't trying to manipulate things. She was ready to leave the field. And he understands, she's not trying to get me. She's taking refuge with the Lord. Um, Catherine Sakefield says this, Certainly Boaz's words suggest that he views Ruth's behavior as exceptional. In short, he reorients the assessment of her status as a foreigner, loose Moabite woman. She is deserving not of rejection and grudging tolerance, but of honor and reward. He notices how hard she's been working. He notices she's going above and beyond the call of duty. Uh, Here's what she says. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have any standing as one of your servants. At mealtime, this seems like at the end of the day here now, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. I just, I put the Hebrew word there because the Hebrew word is hummus. Um, it's probably not hummus. It's, it's, it's a different recipe. Eventually though, this is the word that becomes hummus. I mean, he basically says, come on over here, have some guacamole with me. Let's, this, this is our appetizer. This is what I, I want you to take, uh, take in. When she sat down with the harvesters, He offered her some roasted grain. She ate all that she wanted, and she had some left over. This is where you start to see Boaz has a plan. He wants to bless her. Um, There's some connection going on here. I think there's a budding romance, but he's got a plan to bless her. He gives her enough that she's full, but she even has some left over. Again, Dan Block, obviously this verse is not simply about feeding the hungry, the narrator hereby shows how Boaz took an ordinary occasion and transformed it into a glorious demonstration of compassion, generosity, and acceptance. In short, the biblical understanding of our word again, chesed. This is, this is him taking a normal opportunity where they're having a meal to say, I'm going to be generous above and beyond. God's been faithful to me. He's blessed me with all of these fields, with all of these workers, And I'm going to bless this woman who's been faithful. As she got up to glean, 
There's a little bit more work left to do in the day. Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Don't make her stay in the corners. Let her go ahead and, and glean in the entire field. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. <laughs> Guys, let her, let her glean anywhere she wants. And in fact, every now and then drop something off the back of the truck so she can get it. Um. This is not what Boaz has to do. All Boaz has to do is leave a corner of his field. That's what the law says. Leave a corner of your field so that poor people can glean. He's saying she can glean anywhere she wants. In fact, dump some off the back. The story's going to continue, and you're going to see this, this man has discernment, and she has great humility. Um, that's what's going on on the human level. On, on the divine level, God's always at work behind the scenes making provision and advancing his plan. God's always working. God's always sovereign. And he is advancing his plan. And the gracious part of that is he lets normal people, outsiders like Ruth, um, good men who have been successful like Boaz, he lets them be a part of his story and his plan. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered. She got all of this, and then she gets the barley and takes only the grain back with her, and it amounted to an ephah. I'm not going to do all the math for you. It's about 29 pounds. Um, she gets, in a day, enough to take care of her and Ruth for two, um, for two weeks. Now, obviously, they've got to store some of this up because you're, uh, you're not harvesting all year. But she's got 29 pounds of grain. If she does this for six weeks, they've got an entire year to take care of them. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave what was left over after she had eaten enough. She doesn't bring it and take it to her room and kind of hide it you know, in her nightstand. She's got I've, got, I've got extra, and this is chesed. I've got extra because somebody's been chesed to me. I'm going to be chesed to you. So she brings her 29 pounds of harvest back, and she brings the leftovers back from pasta grill and says, this is for you. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? I mean, you can just see, where'd you get that 29 pounds? That's way more than gleaners usually get. Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She knows something's going on here. She couldn't have gotten that much unless somebody had been kind to her. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. And she may not know it yet, but he's going to be my boyfriend. <laughs> the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not showed, stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Um, I've got to point out something here. The he that I have bolded there, we don't know who that reply applies to. Does it apply to the Lord? The Lord bless him because he's not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. Or is, does it apply to Boaz? Um, the Lord bless him because he, Boaz, has not sh stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. So is this God or is this Boaz? Or is it both? Is it intentionally ambiguous so that we can understand, yes, God has been kind and he is showing that kindness through the human instrument 
of Boaz. And then she highlights, <laughs> he's our close relative. He's, he's going to be the guardian redeemer. He's going to be the protector of our family. This, by the way, in many people's outline and chiastic structure of the book, this verse is often at the center of the chiasm. There's a number of ways you can set it out. So I would highlight for you, the central message of the book is highlighted here at the chiastic center of the book. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has stopped, not stopped showing, now here's our word, chesed. They, they show kindness. They say kindness. But it's so much more than that. He's not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. Who's not stopped showing kindness? Is it Boaz? Is it the Lord? Is it both? The point is that God is showing chesed, and he's using Boaz the channel through whom it will flow. God wants to be kind to people. And often he wants to use us to do it. He wants us to be the channel through whom chesed flows. As described in the legal literature, this idea of a kinsman redeemer, the goel, is how it's translated in Hebrew. Traditionally, the kinsman redeemer was, broadly speaking, a guardian of the extended family's interests. He could recover property the family had sold, including family members who had sold themselves as slaves to pay off a debt. A family guardian could also avenge a murdered family member. He is the, he's the guardian protector of the family, but he has to choose to do it. Then Ruth, the Moabite, said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. He's been very, he, he didn't say, hey, you got your 29 pounds today, great. What he said is, stay with me, keep harvesting until the end, not only of the barley harvest, but of the wheat harvest, which was the next one to come. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the woman who worked for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. Um, yeah, hey, he said you could come back, go back. I mean, she's a smart woman, but she's also aware, go and hang out with the women, because you're a Moabite. People think of you as, as not qualified to be a part of this story. But in God's grace, you are qualified to be a part of this story. Here's how the chapter ends. So Ruth stayed close to the woman of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. She stayed there faithful. <laughs> She's not running away real quickly to go, hey, I've got it made now. Um, Ruth is a woman with integrity, and Naomi is now a woman with vision. She sees, hey, there's something going on here. That's going to play itself out in the next chapter. I encourage you to read ahead. Mary Evans says this, the underlying focus seems to be that in spite of Naomi's previous experience of disaster, God is still with his people and still with this little family, still showing kindness, still acting as their covenant God, the concept of God conveying his blessing through the kindness of his people, in this case Boaz, may also be, be being deliberately introduced. God wants to be kind to people, and he wants you to be the channel through whom people see that kindness. And so don't look for the loopholes, how can I get out of this? In the next chapter, one guy is going to get out of it. But Boaz goes above and beyond to try to bless all of the people around him. Kenway highlights a lot of the themes in this passage. God orchestrates events in the lives of his people. We see that clearly. God blesses those who bless others. We see that in Boaz. God protects and cares for the vulnerable, 
the widows, Naomi and Ruth. And God's faithfulness comes through human expressions of faithfulness. Because God is chesed to us, we should be chesed to him and chesed to other people. Um, Bob Chisholm summarizes the whole passage this way. The Lord often accomplishes his redemptive work through faithful human instruments and providentially guides their footsteps when they decide to love sacrificially, no matter how meager their means appear to be. Every one of us in this room is qualified to be a part of all of this story playing itself out. Every one of us. Doesn't matter what your past is, Ruth. Doesn't matter what your resources are, Booth, Boaz, or Naomi. God wants to use you to bless others. And in that, you can be a part of his great story. So here's how I would summarize the whole chapter. God providentially protects and guides his chosen people as they take initiative and seek to bless others. God's sovereign in all of this, but they're taking initiative. And, and you see, in, in, like no other book in the, New, in the Old Testament, you see God's sovereignty and people's initiative working together. It's not just one or the other. God is actively using everything that happens, even a famine when people go away to Moab and they die there. Why did all that happen? So you could get Ruth. You could bring Ruth back for her to be a part of this story. So what do we learn and what I want to encourage you to do, some next steps from this message. First of all, reorient your Bible reading to make the story of God central, not your story. Read your Bible to go, what story is God playing or telling here? And how are we in his story, not he in my story? We don't invite God to be a part of our story. We are entering and becoming a part of his story, and every one of us are qualified to be a part of it. Secondly, evaluate the relationships in your life and highlight areas where you need to live with more integrity. Where can you be more... um, working hard like Ruth and taking initiative like Ruth? Where can you have more integrity so that when you show up on the scene and you say, the Lord bless you, people say, bless you too. Where can you live with the most integrity? And then finally, I want you to ask this question and have some conversations about this in your family around the lunch and the dinner table. (laughs) What is God up to in your life? Where is he taking you? What is his hope for you in this next year? How can you cooperate with what God is doing? Ask that, ask that question. If you never ask the question, then you're just going to be bopping along with your own plan. But ask, what is God up to? Where is he taking us? How is God sovereignly directing everything along the way? And how can I cooperate with what he's doing? What a beautiful story. A love story. A, 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 a story full of of amazing characters. But behind it all, God's got a plan. And he graciously wants to incorporate every one of you into that plan. Father, thank you for how faithful you are to us. Far beyond kindness, you are loyal and loving and gracious and forgiving You are sovereign, you provide, you guide. And we thank you that that's not just something you did in the Old Testament. (laughs) It's something you're doing today. And Father, I pray that you would allow all of us to um, embrace that reality, that we would be faithful to you and faithful 
as a channel of blessing to others around us. And Father, I pray that we would respond with chesed in our lives. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.